On this week's edition of New York Now, a new SUNY chancellor and another sexual harassment controversy we'll discuss. Then, Congressman-elect Mike Lawler on his big upset last month and the future of the Republican Party. And later, what's next for immigration reform? I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. New York has a new SUNY chancellor, and it's a familiar face. You might remember John King from 10 years ago when he was New York's education commissioner. He left to work in the Obama administration and even spent a year as the U.S. Secretary of Education. But now he's back to lead the State University of New York one of the largest public university systems in the country. And he says his experience, including his own time in public grade school, will drive how he does the job. I know firsthand from my own life and my career as an educator, the transformative power of education. As SUNY Chancellor, I will strive every day to ensure that we deliver together on that promise for every SUNY student. Let's get into that and more with Keisha Kluke from Bloomberg Government. Keisha, thank you as always. Thanks for having me. So you covered John King. Uh, you were not at Bloomberg at the time, but you were covering education. And uh, what I remember about John King, the bullet points that I'd like to, I don't know, refresh, uh, he was in charge of the rollout of Common Core. And I think that that was like the big headline of his tenure there for a, a lot of people around the state whose parents were kind of upset that their kids had started in the old math and then had gone to the new math and all of that good stuff. Um, how do you think he was perceived? Yeah, I think he kind of um, jumped into a very tumultuous time in, in New York State education. I was actually covering at the local level for the Observer Dispatch. Um, so I was on the ground with some of the first uh, testing opt-out movements. And I think the biggest issue for parents was that these new learning standards were put in place um, in September. I mean, I heard stories of teachers like, printing out the textbooks so they could teach them the next day. Yeah. So it was very rushed, which I don't think anyone can contest. That was a pretty rushed rollout. But it was to get those federal race to the top dollars in order um, to ensure those dollars. We had to put this learning standards in place. And then the issue came when there was testing on that curriculum in April. And parents were you know, nervous that the kids were um, that the teachers were teaching to the test and that the, the kids were having these learning standards put in place too soon um, and being, you know, graded on it. And then the other issue is, at the same time, the teacher evaluations were tied to the testing. Right. And so that was the big thing is that, you know, teachers are trying to teach this new curriculum and then um, it also reflects how they're going to get paid, how they're going to keep their jobs. So um, it was a very difficult time. Um, I remember John King going to different public hearings across the state. Um, he came to the Utica area, and it was not a nice scene to be at. I mean, there were people just screaming. It's their children, you know? Right. So um, it gets very heated, and they're screaming at him. And he, um, I think, to his um, testament is that he uh, is a very, like, remained very calm and 
just calmly was like, you know, ask me your questions. I'll try to answer what I can. And we're really just trying to listen and take that and put it into place. So it, um, his tenure was very interesting. It kind of continued to rise. Um, the opt-out movements were, you know, I, I forget what the numbers were, but very high in the state, the highest in the nation, especially mm -hmm. on Long Island. Um, and then he kind of had exited uh, in the middle of this. <laughs> so you've covered SUNY chancellors too. Um, it, it's an interesting transition from state ed commissioner to U.S. Secretary of Education to uh, something that I left out a few minutes ago is that he also ran for governor of Maryland recently and now he's come back to New York to be the SUNY chancellor. Um, just briefly, is there anything that we know about him that might inform what kind of chancellor he might be? Or, uh, you know, just looking at SUNY chancellors in general? I think that he is a very big picture guy. Um, so I think he'll come into uh, the state university system and take kind of a, an overall view of it. Um, he does have that K-12 connection, which I think um, the one of the prior chancellors, Nancy Zimfer, had really stressed was, you know, we're not just taking the kids from K to 12 and it ends and then from college and it ends. You're, you want it to be this pipeline all the way through to the job that they mm -hmm. eventually get um, with their degree. So I think that he could bring a very interesting um, you know, outlook on this position. Um, but we'll have to see. He's inheriting just a host of issues. We've had a lot of turnover in the SUNY chancellor. We've had you know, two, three in the last few years here yeah. um, coming after Nancy Zimfer, who was there for a very long time. And so he's inheriting that. There's a lot of money issues because of historic underfunding um, of the SUNY schools at the same time and kind of intertwined with the fact that they're losing enrollment, um, which many schools are. It's not to SUNY's, you know, detriment or, or fault. It's uh, the fact that there's just fewer kids in the state. So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. He's taking on a big uh, task here, and we'll see if uh, he's up for the challenge. Another big headline from the week that is kind of a weird, it's complicated because there's a lot of dates involved. But I will give our audience the long and short of it. Uh, the AG's chief of staff, we found out, I believe it was last weekend, we found out that he resigned in late November after being accused of sexual harassment by a person who had worked at the office, wasn't working at the office at the time of the alleged incident. Um, Ibrahim Khan is his name. Uh, he resigned in late November, effective at the end of the year. And then we also know that he was accused of um, being involved in a situation with a woman in 2014 as well at the city level, he was cleared of wrongdoing there. Um, a lot of people are calling attention to this because of the, the kind of, maybe I'll call it ironic dynamic of her doing the major investigation into Governor Cuomo, which led to his resignation, very public investigation. And then her chief of staff is accused and they do an investigation for about two months, but it's it's private. And she made a point of saying this week that that was the distinction is that this was a private investigation with an employee and has been handled, <clears throat> excuse me, whereas the governor was the governor of New York. Um, we have about a minute left. What was your take on the situation? Yeah, I think the biggest issue um, that people are bringing up is that it was known about before the election oh, and right. it wasn't released before then or there was no notification of it. And I think there's also some question of where the funding um, came from for this investigation because it should have gone through the state comptroller's office. And one of the last articles I at least read on it had said, um, 
we didn't see anything right. about a contract. I so um, it almost has the, it seems like it was trying to be under wraps, um, which like you said, is a very interesting uh, comparison to how uh, Cuomo's investigation was handled. So I don't know. We'll have to see what shakes out with it. Speaker yeah. Hasty said there won't be an investigation of Tish James. So I don't know. <laughs> right. And Democrats are rallying around her. So I, you know, honestly, my, my gut says that it's probably not going to go anywhere, but maybe something to keep an eye on in the new year. Keisha Kluke from Bloomberg, <clears throat> excuse me, Keisha Kluke from Bloomberg government. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And moving on now to some health news. State officials said this week that they're watching the rise of what some are calling a tridemic. It's not a real term, but refers to the recent surge of three diseases in New York, COVID, the flu, and RSV, a common respiratory virus. All three are spreading here, and state officials say they've got an eye on hospital capacity to make sure beds are there if they're needed. Beyond that, the state is urging New Yorkers to get vaccinated for COVID and the flu and to watch out for any symptoms. State Health Commissioner Dr. Mary Bassett. So we can't uh, emphasize enough the importance of people getting their shots. Um, and we want people to be as protected as they can be from serious illness and death. And we'll let you know if we see any major changes there. But turning now to some national news from right here in New York. In the lead up to last month's elections, Democrats were confident about winning New York's 17th congressional district in the lower Hudson Valley. They were running five-term Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, who is also chair of the DCCC. That's basically the campaign arm for Democrats in the House. But in the end, Maloney came up short. Mike Lawler, a Republican and first-term Assembly member, won by more than 2,000 votes in a surprise to many. So this week, we spoke with Lawler about his election and the future of the Republican Party. Congressman-elect Mike Lawler, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course, anytime. So I think when you announced your candidacy, everybody thought it would be an uphill battle for you because you're going up against Sean Patrick Maloney, the chair of the DCCC, a very powerful political figure, but you pulled out through ahead on the election day. What do you think about your message resonated with voters? I think that's what it's all about in these races. All politics is really local. No question. And I think there were a number of factors that played a pivotal role here. Uh, number one, Democrats controlled everything in Washington, Albany, and New York City for the first time in our nation's history. And I think New Yorkers are always pragmatic and always have been. And I think a lot of it had to do with two major issues, inflation and crime. And on um, both, you know, Democrats controlled everything and, and they were responsible uh, for the policies that had been enacted. And I think especially in the suburbs of New York City, uh, the issue of crime really resonated. Uh, and I was very message disciplined. And I think that uh, obviously has served me well uh, in, in elected office, but uh, in this campaign especially, sticking to the message, sticking to the issues that matter to voters, and not getting caught up in, in some of these other issues that, uh, you know, frankly distract and uh, don't pull together the coalition that you need. Right. How do you how do you build that coalition going forward in the Republican Party? I mean, you see the same thing with the Dem Democrat Party, but there seems to be a division between people that are more to the moderate side and people who have gone further to the right, uh, what is commonly called the far right. So how do you move forward as a party into that space of coalition building where we don't see, uh, you know, those issues that really divide people? 
Well, look, I flipped a two to one Democratic district two years ago in the state assembly. I was the only Republican pickup. Uh, this time around, I flipped a seat that's a D plus three. Joe Biden won by 10 points. And I've done it by going into every community, talking to voters, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, their gender, their religion, uh, and, and focusing in on what are those issues that cut across. I mean, at the end of the day, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent, all of us want a few basic things in life, right? We want a good paying job to provide for our families. We want a quality education for our children. We want access to housing and health care. And we want to live in safe neighborhoods. And I think that and my focus on that cut across. As, as a party, as Republicans going forward, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned here uh, across the country. Uh, candidates that were you know, focused on the past, focused on uh, rehashing the 2020 election or grievances, uh, I don't think fared too well. And I think those that were focused on the future and what they're looking to do to, to address those challenges uh, won. Uh, and so I think the question going forward for, for both parties, frankly, is how do we how do we find compromise? How do we find resolution to these challenges that we're facing? It can't just continue to be a political ping pong uh, where we go back and forth and and switch who's in power every two to four years. I think voters are very frustrated with that. And I think if there's if there's two lessons that I saw in this election, number one, one party rule does not work, uh, and voters reject it. And number two, voters are rejecting extremism. They want balance. They want common sense. They want reasonableness. And I think that's what I presented uh, to voters in my district. And you will be taking office at a really beneficial time for you because Republicans will be taking the majority in the House in January when you're sworn in. You know, what do you think the strategy should be for House Republicans for these next two years that you're guaranteed the majority, at least in the House? It's going to be a little difficult because you have Democrats in the White House and the U.S. Senate, um, kind of like what we've seen in the New York the government with Republicans in the state Senate at times. Yep. How do you move forward instead of going into gridlock for two years? Well, you just mentioned it. I mean, New York Republicans controlled the state Senate up until 2018, and we were able to get a lot of things done with split government. And I think being able to uh, work across the aisle, uh, reach out and find compromise where we can, uh, stand up and oppose where we must, um, I, that's always worked well for Republicans in New York. Uh, and I think that is, you know, the approach that I will take. Certainly I have among the most bipartisan voting records in Albany, uh, as a member of the state legislature. Um, and I'm willing to work with the president, willing to work with, uh, S Senate majority leader, Chuck Schumer and others, uh, to get things done on behalf of New York and on behalf of the American people. Um, and where we must oppose uh, the Biden agenda and, and some of the policies that, frankly, have created uh, some of the dynamics that we're dealing with from an economic standpoint, uh, we will. Uh, but I think it's going to be incumbent upon everybody on all sides uh, to give a little and to show a willingness to work across the aisle and compromise. It's not just Republicans uh, acquiescing to Democrats, uh, which is often uh, you know, the, the mindset of those when they talk about bipartisanship. Bipartisanship is, is a two-way street, and it requires everybody being willing to work to find compromise and solutions uh, to the challenges that we're facing. And I'm willing to do that, and I have a record of doing that, um, and that's going to be my approach come January. 
Ray, I mean, you were one of the Republicans who I would often see uh, show up to kind of just watch press conferences that Democrats were doing outside of the assembly chamber. Um, you didn't often join them, of course, but that doesn't really happen usually. We don't see the opposite party's members kind of go and see what the other party is going to uh, going to be saying. So I always found that interesting about you. Um, I imagine that you may be doing some of the same things as you're mentioning while you're in Congress. And you mentioned leaving things behind in 2020, future of the party. Obviously, the former president has announced his candidacy to uh, be president again. Do you think that the party just needs to move on from him? That seems to be where we're headed in a lot of different ways. We see it in uh, more conservative media. Some members of Congress even are, are putting some distance between themselves and him. What do you think? So just to the point uh, that you made about uh, listening to, to press conferences that my colleagues would give, look, you always learn something. And I think you have to be willing to listen um, and to understand where other people are coming from, uh, whether you fully agree with them or not, um, you, you have to be willing to listen and, and engage. And that's the only way you're gonna find compromise. And so uh, one of the things that I always did was go speak to all of my colleagues, all 149 of my fellow assembly members, uh, you know, I would speak to directly and, and talk about the issues and, and try to find area of agreement. With respect to the former president, uh, look, he's obviously uh, announced his intention to run. Uh, he's going to make his decision. Ultimately, the voters within a Republican primary uh, will decide. My focus is on the future. And I think any candidate that's running, whether it's the former president or somebody like a Ron DeSantis, um, you know, who has kind of surged within the party, um, I, I think they need to be focused on the future and they need to be focused on what they're going to do to address the challenges. I don't think anybody's interested in, in rehashing the last you know, five years or uh, looking backwards and, and uh, you know, focusing on, on personal slights and grievances. I think people want to see uh, what the plan is to deal with these challenges. And if the former president is not able to do that, then I think the party needs to move in a different direction. And, and I think, you know, people like Ron DeSantis, Glenn Youngkin, uh, new voices in the party. Uh, I'm a big believer in, in looking forward and uh, always having new voices uh, rise to the top. Yeah, and I think you're right about how voters feel right now in terms of political, you know, mess is how I describe it. There's just so much going on all the time in politics, and I think that's overwhelming. So I think what we saw in this last election was maybe an inch towards voters looking past the politics more to the real issues. So yep. I guess we'll see if that plays out in future election cycles. Congressman-elect Mike Lawler, thank you so much. And a Republican wins last month, like with Lawler, gave the party control of the U.S. House. And that could mean a lot of different things for a lot of different issues, like immigration, including the future of DACA, a protection program for undocumented people brought here as children. We get the latest this week from Eddie Tavares, political director of immigration campaigns at Forward.us. Eddie Tavares, thank you so much for coming back. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So going into next year, it's a different political situation down in Washington, D.C. We have Republicans taking control of the House, Democrats maintaining a slim majority in the Senate. For immigration reform, I don't really know what the story is on that. So for the next two years, are we just going to see gridlock or is there a possibility that something happens? Yeah, so even before going into next year, we still have a session in Congress that hasn't ended. And so 
that we are working for .us and a month and a bunch of other national and statewide organizations are working towards uh, finding a solution and permanent protections for dreamers and DACA recipients before the end of the year. Um, and so this is a great opportunity because of Congress flipping um, in the House uh, to make sure that we do uh, live by our words um, and make sure that we provide a permanent protection and a pathway to citizenship for these dreamers who have been here for an average of 28 years. On DACA, we've talked about that before. It's the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals program that was instituted under former President Obama, then taken away under President Trump. It's actually gone through a lot of different changes over the past uh, decade. I mean, I, I don't remember when it was actually implemented, but what's the status of DACA right now? Yeah, so it was a program that was uh, implemented in 2012 um, and has been litigated through the courts um, throughout the years. Unfortunately, uh, the courts have uh, ruled that uh, DACA is unconstitutional um, and is still battling for uh, in, in the courts. And so we have a very small windows to ensure that DACA recipients, about 600,000 plus of uh, current DACA recipients um, and those that would uh, otherwise have been uh, eligible for the program um, to ensure that we create a pathway to citizenship. Um, and, you know, we have to either do this now or potentially face uh, consequences and the risks of deportation and family separation that will come from um, an unfavorable ruling, which, again, there's uh, all the indications seems to go that way. And that would have to be something done by Congress, correct? President Biden couldn't somehow revive it and change it to make it legal. That is correct, yeah. So they ruled on the constitutionality of the, uh, the you know, ex executive authority on this. And so uh, any, nor Biden or any other administration can do anything on this. This is solely up to Congress to fix. Um, and it's been 10 years um, with folks that are, have DACA. It's been decades uh, of folks who have been here and are, you know, categorized as dreamers and also the broader undocumented populations um, that have been here. And again, we haven't done any significant changes in our immigration law since uh, Reagan was president. Exactly. And, you know, when we talk about things like a pathway to citizenship, like that program especially, I think, is something that has felt more out of reach than maybe a DACA. You may disagree with me, but I'm wondering over these next two years with Republicans in power in the House, is that just completely off the table or is there a pathway to a pathway, for lack of a better word? Yeah, so we have to be optimistic, uh, you know, given the fight that we are in. But yes, it does get much harder. The probability, you know, are not in our favor, given that, you know, the potentially next Speaker of the, of the House, uh, Representative uh, Kevin McCarthy, has noted that he is not going to put any immigration bill on the floor. And so we have to take these people out their word for it, and particularly during this, you know, uh, political dynamic that people are going into the extremes. We want to make sure that in this Congress, before the end of the year, that we get something done that protects streamers um, and their families, right, who depend on them, their community members, um, employers, et cetera, uh, that want them here to stay in their home, which is the only home that they've known. I imagine it must be frustrating. I mean, Democrats have been in power in Congress and the White House for the past two years. 
haven't been able to do anything on DACA or a pathway to citizenship or any major immigration reform, as you mentioned. Why do you think this issue is so difficult to make progress on? I, I, I mean, I think that we see votes coming along very slowly from people, but why do you think that it's so much harder than maybe some other issues? Yeah, I mean, this is a complete moral and ethical failure on Congress, right? Poll after poll shows that the American people, American voters, um, are supportive of a pathway to citizenship for dreamers, um, farm workers, and so on and so forth, and those who are undocumented. And they want to see Congress work in a bipartisan manner to pass this. And so it is they are essentially negating the will of the American people and the will of uh, American voters who uh, put them in power um, by not coming to a compromise and a solution that is, uh, you know, center on family, dignity, and the humanity of, of individuals. Now, immigration is primarily a federal issue uh, historically, but at the state level, we have done things that have benefited un undocumented people and other immigrants coming into the country, for example, refugees. Do you see any issues coming up in New York next year, in next year's legislative session, that might be immigration-related that you're watching? Yeah, and I would know that these uh, laws that we've passed in the state, uh, as they you know, support and benefit um, immigrants, they've also supported the state in general, not just economically, but also culturally um, in, in regards also to the diversity of like what makes New York State so amazing. For next year, we're looking at, uh, you know, two particular bills. One is the New York Parole Act, which ensures that, you know, there is not a, uh, a deportation pipeline and um, that adheres or uh, contribute to the family separations that we've seen throughout, uh, you know, the years and particularly during the former uh, administration. I think another great bill, and particularly our, as we're talking about an, um, an economy um, that is currently suffering from job shortages, uh, is the Empire State Licensing Act, which would allow um, immigrants, but also undocumented immigrants, to gain access to occupational licensing um, and be able to participate in an economy and also making sure that, you know, they have the appropriate and requirements to do those jobs. We want to make sure that their lack of not knowing English to the best of, uh, of their abilities is not a hindrance in, you know, making sure that they can do that job, which, again, is much needed. And so... Um, it doesn't change the requirement, but it just makes sure that English is not a barrier if it's not a requirement for the job. And we will be watching all of it. Eddie Tavares, political director of immigration campaigns at Forward.us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. More on all that when the new legislature and the new Congress take office in January. Until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.